0: In Ephesians uh, chapter 2, um, we have the first picture that I'd to, like to look at this morning of the temple of God, us as living stones, and God's building this morning. There have been some monuments in this world that have been created for people, by, by people, for people that they love. One of them expresses how deeply a man loved his wife. And even though after she would pass away and she remained but a memory in his heart, he wanted to make sure that this memory would last a lot longer than she did. He wanted to make sure that this memory would never fade away. This man was the Mughal emperor Shah Jahan. He was head over heels in love with Mumps Mahal, his dear wife. She was a Muslim Persian princess, and he was the son of an emperor and the grandson of one of the famous emperors in India, Akbar the Great. And it was the age of 14 that he met Mumtaz and fell in love with her. And five years later, in the year 1612, they got married. Mumtaz was an inseparable companion of the Shah Jahan, But she died in 1631 while giving birth to their 14th child. It was in the memory of this beloved wife that the Shah Jahan built a magnificent monument as a tribute to her, which today we know as the Taj Mahal. The construction of the Taj Mahal started in 1631. It took 22 years to build. Masons and stone cutters and layers, carvers, painters, calligraphers, dome builders and other artists were taken from all over the empire of this kingdom and also from Central Asia and Iran to build what we see today. That work was the epitome of love. It took 22,000 laborers and 1,000 elephants to build that temple. It was built entirely out of white marble, which was brought in all over from all over India and Central Asia. It cost 32 million rupees to build in that day, which I'm not sure translate how much that translates to today, but it was a phenomenal price. But it was a picture of that king's love for his wife. In Ephesians chapter 2, we have the very first picture of, Uh, that we're going to look at here in our series. We're going to look at four specifically. The church as a building project, as an object of the Father's love for His Son. Look with me again in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 19. Our focus will be on verses 20 through 22. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. I want us to understand and see this morning primarily that the Spirit is building Christ's church. It is the Holy Spirit that is the builder in all of this. He is the foreman here. He is the one who is in charge of building Christ's church. But if you look with me in the text, verse 20 says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. If you think about the passage, and those of you who have been actively involved in construction, whether that was building a little shed on your yard, or whether that is building a multi-million dollar construction project, you know that before you have to begin, there has to be a blueprint. There has to be somebody who is an architect. There has to be somebody who designs and lays out the plans for this building. And while this individual is not specifically and directly mentioned in the text, he is, if we look in Ephesians chapter 1, just a page forward, in verses 3 through 14, we have revealed to us the architect of this building that the Spirit is building. And I want you to understand this morning that the church of God is not something that was a reaction of God. It's not something that, uh, that, 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 that He thought, you know, that would be good. But the church of God is God's eternal plan. In fact, I read to you this morning from Ephesians chapter 3 where uh, the, Paul says about the church, he says, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there was no surprise here to the Father, the architect. And so I want us to see this morning, first of all, that the Father has designed this building. He is the designer. Out of His love, He designs this structure, the church, for His glory. And I, I trust, as you understand, I'm talking about a building and a structure. I'm talking about the people in Christ's church. But let me just show you this to you. In in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, in the original language, this is one long run-on sentence. Grammar teachers, you would have pulled your hair out if you had Paul here. He wrote a long, long sentence here. But the the reason he wrote it in one long sentence is to show us the extravagant nature of God's love. And God choosing people as the special objects of His grace in order to form this that we call the church. And I'm going to read these verses. I know they're extended. But I want you, as I'm reading these verses, to pick out the idea that God the Father is the designer. He is the architect. And He's designed this for His glory. In fact, you'll hear His glory come up a few times. You'll see expressions of His love. And you'll see the idea of God having an eternal purpose, a plan. So with those elements in mind, God's plan and purpose, the elements of His love. Let's read, let me read verses 3-14. through 14. that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, unto the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of His glory. Now folks, from those verses, if you didn't get that God had a plan and a purpose, that the Father is the architect, that God has birthed this church out of His love, then you missed the whole point. It couldn't be any clearer. And God the Father is the architect of the building that the Spirit is building, and He has designed this building for His glory. But I want you to look back at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 again. This design is now being built. The idea, the plan, has now come to fruition And the Spirit, in verse 20, is building upon a foundation. And I want you to notice very closely in verse 20 what that foundation is. Paul says that foundation is is the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now what is he saying here? Well the second thing I want us to see this morning is that Jesus... And his word are the foundation of that building. Jesus and his word. Now I'll explain that second part here, his word. Why am I saying that it is his word that is the foundation of the building? Well, Paul says there are built this household of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets make up this foundation. What is Paul trying to get through to us? Well, the apostles were the ones designated by God to be the ones who taught the church early in the the church's history about the things that Christ had taught them. That's why in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, one of the things that was the mark of the church was that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and their teaching. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul says this. The mystery of Christ, which is the church... He says, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Later on in Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 11 says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets, and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, what is the point of all this? Well, apostles and prophets were to make up the foundation. Because the foundation was to be the word of God. Do you remember what Jesus told those apostles before he ascended? He said, go and make disciples of all nations. He said, baptizing them in the triune God. And he said, what? Teaching them. Teaching them what? Whatsoever things I have commanded you. Teaching for obedience to the things that God had commanded uh, the apostles. So it is his word that is the foundation of the building. So when you see here that it is apostles and prophets that make up the foundation, and it was only the apostles and prophets because they are the ones who deliver the Word of God. Jesus, this Word, is the foundation of the building. But where does Jesus come in? Well, you notice that second part of verse 20. What does it say? Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, that Jesus is the foundation. No other man can lay that foundation. Jesus is the foundation, Paul says. And so Jesus is the one who is the cornerstone, that corner of the foundation. And First Peter chapter 2, which is kind of a cross-reference that uh, we will be uh, looking at a couple times today. First Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Peter says this, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect or chosen, Precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. On you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the stone that the builders disqualified, said, "Uh uh-uh, uh, this isn't. that We can't use this." The same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Jesus is the cornerstone. Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 28:16, or also could be a quote from Psalm 118, but a cornerstone. It was a stone put in the corner of the foundation that would bring together two walls, two walls. Two walls would make their junction at the cornerstone, so it would join two walls. Two walls could be tied together by one stone. That one stone belonged to both. They both shared it and united the two walls. In Ephesians chapter 2, in an earlier context, we find out that those two walls are Jew and Gentile. That cornerstone governs all the angles of the building. They're laid off for that cornerstone and relationship uh, to it. In Christ, Jews and Gentiles, that Gentiles that were before excluded from the covenant, have been united together because they've been united to Christ, and have joined with Christ. They are connected with one another. And Though we don't have a church of half-Jews and half-Gentiles here this morning, uh, that application extends broadly, doesn't it? We have people from all kinds of backgrounds, people of different social statuses, people of different economic levels, uh, people of different livings, uh, people of of different uh, uh, experiences growing up. And in the church, God brings all those together because they're joined with Jesus, connected with Jesus. And so Jesus and His Word are the foundation. It is the Word of God that we are united to. And, and, and we are to, to, as we sang uh, in, in the song of uh, the glorious church, uh, Christ the foundation of that church, we, we talk, one of the verses talks about one faith. We're unified. We have one new birth. And we might have all kinds of different opinions represented here. And Jesus here brings us together in unity. He does not bring us together in uniformity, where we all look the same, we all think the same, we all talk the same. He doesn't bring us to that, but he brings us to unity connected to Jesus. He doesn't bring us even to uni- uh, unanimity, where, where, we, where we are all in agreement about everything. That won't happen. Monday probably will, in the new world. But he brings us to unity in Christ, and so that's why it's important to remember that ultimately. It's not about our preferences. It's not about our opinions. It's about His Word, and it's about being connected to Jesus. Jesus is what matters. In fact, Colossians describes Him as the head of the church. And you can see how that picture there really plays into Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. If Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but there's another aspect of this building that the Spirit is building that I want you to understand. And it's this third point, that we are the sculpted stones. We're the sculpted stones. That's what we, we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 on the screen this morning. We're living stones. Living stones. So Peter puts it this way. He says, "Ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We're living stones. Now there are three words in the Greek language that are used of, of rocks. One is petra, and that just refers to a rock, any rock. You see a rock on on ragged mountain that's you know shine shine, shine the sun shining on that cliff there. That's a petra. That's that's rock. Okay. Um, there is also another word used for rock, um, it is the word Petros. petros. And if you were to be plowing your fields and you would kick up a rock uh, and you would throw that to the side or in the pile of rocks there on the edge of your field, that's what that would be referring to. Or if you were walking down a path and uh, a rock was sticking up and you tripped over it there, uh, a loose rock, that would be uh, 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 the rock that Petros represented. There's a third word for um, rock or stone in the, in the Greek uh, language, and it is the word lithos. Lithos. Maybe some of you rec- recognize it from a lithograph, okay? Lithos. Lithos was a, a worked rock. It was a prepared rock. It was a sculpted rock. It had a purpose. It had a, a, a niche to fill, Okay? That is the word that is used in 1 Peter 2.5, describing us as living stones. Not just a rock. Not just a, uh, something there in the, um, in the path or the field that just needs to be removed. This is a rock that is alive and is prepared for purpose. It has been sculpted. It has been crafted. It has been carved out to fit in a very specific spot. Now, before I die, I want to go visit Machu Picchu in Peru. Did you guys go to that in Peru when you were there? No. Okay, so we'll, all three of us have to go back and visit that. All right, hike up there. It's a place where the Incas made this amazing city out of stones. Stones, some of which are, would, would be a good portion of this room. It's a mystery as to how they moved them and how they did it, like the pyramids, right? Um, but there are stones that, that, uh, that have been carved out to fit perfectly together. So perfectly. That these huge boulders that fit so perfectly together, you can't even slide a piece of paper in between. And notice how Paul Peter, or excuse me, Paul in Ephesians describes the church in Ephesians chapter 2 again. He says, In whom all the building fitly Framed or joined together. We are sculpted stones. All right? That same word lithos that is used of us as living stones is also used of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2, the living stone, which teaches us our union with Christ. You see, at the crucifixion, man rejected that stone on the cross. They rejected that stone crucified out of the city. But, that, but the Father took that rejected stone that was crucified out of the city and He made it this precious, treasured, living stone. And He made it the foundation and the chief cornerstone of a new building called the church that you and I have as our place right next to Him, joined next to Him. As specially and skillfully crafted, hewed, formed, shaped, and carved living stones. In fact, earlier on, in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul says this, For we are his workmanship, we are his craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus and the good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You see, there's something unique about these stones. When I was a kid, I wondered if stones grew. I wondered if they were alive, if they could get bigger like human beings got bigger. And as I learned a little bit more science, I realized, no. If anything, they get smaller, as they wrote. But these stones are alive; they are organic. There is life pulsing through these stones, and thus that sounds like a paradox, right? We think of stone; it's dead, right? We said, uh, you know, dumb as a rock, right? That's one of our expressions. No life there. No brain waves going through that rock. But these are living stones; they possess life. And folks, we were once lifeless stones, as we saw in our series on the new birth, dead. But we're joined to that resurrected living stone. If you are in Christ. And we have life in Him. And we become partakers of His divine nature. We get our life from the living stone. And are connected and joined to Him. Fitly framed together. Fitly joined. A living stone. You know what that means? Well that means. Because we're living stones. That Paul can say in verse 21. That this temple grows. It grows in an holy temple in the Lord. It grows. So I guess I was partly right as a little kid. These stones are alive and they do grow. They do grow. Now what does this mean? Well, this building grows because it's made of living stones. It, what does growing mean? Well, there's interaction. There's connection. There's progress. There's increase. There's growth. Growth in two ways. Growth in and quality and growth and quantity. What do we mean by that? Well, we grow together in quality as we together become more like Christ in our inner part. We're all different shapes of stones here. I don't mean that in a physical sense. But God has sculpted us in different ways, hasn't He? Uh, you can have an orchestra and you have instruments that play very low, like a bassoon. Anybody ever play bassoon? I always wanted me someone who played the bassoon. Interesting instrument. And then you have the piccolo. It's like a short flute. It makes a very high pitch. You have the drums. You have the cello. You have the bass. Uh, you have the violins, etc. But you know what? Though they all make different noises. And then they all have different, uh, and I don't even know the, the word to use, musicians. The different keys they play in? I don't even know. Okay? But you know what I'm saying. They harmonize together. They can harmonize together. They are not in uniformity, are they? But they are in union. They are not all unanimous in the same noise and sound that they make, but they produce a union and a fusion of, of melodies. And here's what Paul says. He says, uh, this body grows is fitly framed together, grows in the Holy Temple, Lord, joined together. We grow in quality. They say you can take a tuning fork. And, uh, and and strike a note on that tuning fork, and from that tuning fork, you can have all the instruments who play low and high, all be in tune with that. And that's what Jesus Christ does. He brings unity. He puts us all together in harmony, fitly framed. Got to underline that word in your Bible: together, together, unity, unity, unity. It's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, the night before he died. Unity. So we grow in quality, become like Him as we love God more fully, love each other and the loss that He comes to redeem. In fact, later on in chapter 4, verse 12, He says, For the perfecting of the saints, the complete, completion of it, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or building up the body of Christ, He says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Not unto the measure and stature of your favorite Bible teacher. Not unto the measure and stature of your pastor. Not unto the measure and stature of your husband or your wife. To the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Because He is the tuning fork. He is the conductor that brings us all together. We grow in quality. But folks, we also are to grow in quantity. That is not a bad thing. And sometimes the excesses of some of the church growth movement have frightened us away from this. But we are to grow in quantity. As we are on mission with Jesus, we are to help him be on mission and be the tools that help open more eyes. That help bring in more living stones to the building that he's building. He wants enlargement. He wants extension. He wants new additions of regenerate souls multiplied into this church. So we are the sculpted stones. I want you to understand one more aspect about this fact that we are sculpted stones. Because back in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, Peter says, you're living stones that are a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. This is strange. What does this mean? some of you, because of different traditions and backgrounds, perhaps think of a priest as someone in a robe behind a curtain, or the priest up front who is is, uh, uh, doing some of the religious rituals. That is exactly the opposite of what Peter is saying. Because priesthood in the Old Testament was reserved to that. A few doing the work for many. Priests were mediators. They went on behalf of a great many Uh, as a select few, and were the the, the mediators between God and the rest of the nation of Israel. But here's what is wonderful. And the new covenant, that old covenant has gone away, and we become priests, every single one of us. And priest is, I guess. What does that mean? That means on the basis of Jesus Christ, the great high priest... Every single one of you does not have to go through an intermedi- uh, a, a mediator before God. You can go directly before God, Hebrews tells us, because of Jesus Christ. You can offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. So, while he is building this temple out of stones, he is building out of us as a royal priesthood, priests of the king. Here's what it means a little bit more. I said we can offer up spiritual sacrifices. All right. Those priests in the Old Testament times were the ones, the only ones who were allowed to offer the sacrifices. In fact, there are some kings in Israel's history that tried to take that into, <clears throat> into their own realm and were seriously judged by God. Leprosy and death, etc. We have access to God through the Holy Spirit and we can offer up spiritual sacrifices. Well, what, what, what are spiritual sacrifices? Well, I'll give you one. Hebrews twelve, or excuse me, Romans twelve one and two, offering your body as a sacrifice to God. Okay, saying God, I'm surrendered to your will. Do with me as you wish for your good. I'll give you another. Go to Hebrews thirteen. Peter says spiritual sacrifices uh, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Notice he always. Reminds us of our means. It's only through Jesus. Reminds us of the gospel. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 10. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the body of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate... Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. So, sacrifice of praise. A priest, we can offer this sacrifice. Sacrifice of praise, what is it? That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Glorifying him. Thanking him. Being in awe of his gracious provision. And then he expands this. Here's more of your duties as a priest of God. The next verse. But to do good and to communicate or to share, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. You know what the sacrifices of worship are for the priests in this temple? It's real hard. Doing good. Doing good because of the gospel. Doing good works because of the gospel. So we... Uh, are the sculpted stones. Not only are we the sculpted stones, but this building here is not just a building that doesn't have a purpose. If you drive down 235, on the right there's a building um, that I just kind of scratched my head out and it looks like it's never been finished. The wall, some of the walls are up and some of them aren't. And it looks like it's waiting for the next stage that has never happened. That's not the church of God at all. The church of God is a building that has a purpose, and here is the purpose. It is the dwelling place of God. It is a temple. It is the dwelling place of God. You see, look what he says in in Ephesians chapter two again. In verse twenty one. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple of the Lord. There's a goal there. There's a goal. Growing growing toward a holy temple, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation, a dwelling place of God, through the Spirit. Here's what what he's saying. I have a bad habit of saying, okay kids, it's time to go to church. You might say, well what's, what's wrong with that? Well it's not accurate, it's not correct. And here's the reason. When I say go to church, I'm thinking of the church as a geographical location, a place, a building with four walls. All right? But the church is clearly laid out in Scripture as a people. People of God. And whether we had, uh, we gathered together on Charlie's lawn there in front of his mega bonfire and sang songs and worshiped God. Or there earlier this summer underneath the tent and had our surface there. Or whether we are in this room, we are the church of God. We don't go to church. We go to be with the church. And there's a difference there. Alright? Secondly, sometimes I and others say, Lord, we thank you that we are in the house of God. Alright? And again, we think of the sanctuary as the house of God. And sometimes I can get a little extreme, like I was in one church and you weren't allowed, kids weren't allowed to go up on the platform because that was sacred. Was sacred, right? The pulpit was 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 sacred. It was set apart. Uh, no, that's a piece of wood. All right. Uh, we're not superstitious here. We're in the new covenant here. Guess what? We are with the house of God. We are the house of God. We are the house of God. Okay. Why can we say that? Well, think of the New Testament church. Where did they meet? They met in homes. They met in caves. They met wherever they could get together. It was the togetherness as they met together that uh, proved that they were the dwelling place of God. But think how strange that would be in a culture, in a religious culture, in Rome and in Jerusalem, where a temple was an extravagant, amazing building. So, Johnny Christian... Is playing in the street with Johnny Unchristian, and Johnny says, "Um, So, what do you guys believe? I don't ever see you at our temple, temple to Apollo. What do you guys? Where's your temple? What would Johnny Christian say, the Johnny Unchristian? He'd go back to Ephesians, Paul's teaching and say, Us together are the temple. Now, to the unbeliever, that would be ridiculous, stupid. They would build these temples for hundreds of years. One of the temples to the god uh, Apollos in, in, um, in, in Greece was, was built for 400 years. They say just one of the pilder, pillars to that temple, and there were many of them, would take a stonecutter 52 years of his life to build. But this temple of believers... That's not as amazing. Yet it it's true. We are the temple. We are the dwelling place of God. And the building that the Spirit is forming is not just any structure. It is the dwelling place of God. Now think of the teaching of the temple in the Old Testament, right? You could say that the Garden of Eden was a kind of a temple. It was the display of God's presence. Later on, the tabernacle, right? It's a kind of glory that that hovered there uh, over, the, over the, the mercy seat of the, of the Ark of the Covenant the holy place. The temple that Solomon built. Glorious, grandeur, majestic. And Jesus says in the Gospels, guess what? It's going to be destroyed, torn down. I'm the true temple. I'm the true temple. Now think about this. Jesus says, I'm the true temple. And he tells us, we are the temple. You know what that means? We're connected to Jesus. We're connected to Jesus. Think about this. In the Old Testament, or in, in the Greek, there there are two words in the Bible for temple. One refers to the to the whole complex, the whole complex. Alright, the outer courtyards, everything, even the, the, the little sanctuary there. Okay? The whole complex, the courtyard, the porches, the place of worship, everything. The other is the Greek word naos. And that is the word that's used here and it refers to that actual place of worship there. The holy place and the holy of holies. The shrine that only the priest could go in. And that's the word here that's used of us. We're the holy place. We're the holy of holies. That is the place in the Jewish temple where the presence of God was to dwell there behind that curtain among the Ark of the Covenant. The naos was where in Luke chapter 1 where Zechariah met the angel who told him about that he'd have a son, John the Baptist. The Naos was the veil that, uh, that was torn. The day where Jesus died, that was the place. It was the abode of God. And look at, look again, verse 21. Grow together unto an holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22. In whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Here's the amazing part. The Spirit makes us together that structure. That place... Where the presence of God dwells and lives and abides as we're together. The whole Trinity is involved in this, understand. The Spirit builds through Jesus so that the Father has a dwelling place, us, together. You know, Israel had a building where God dwelled for a while. But the church, the people of God, is the building in which God dwells. Forever. We are the cathedral of God. God inhabits his church.
1: And together we house the God of the
0: universe as we are spirit empowered. I just want to show you two things here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul says this as he's talked about the church in Corinth. He says this. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Understand that when ye is used, it means you all. All right, it's, it's the you plural. He says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, because remember, it's supposed to be a holy temple growing, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? Later on, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, Paul says this, And what agreement hath the temple of God, the church of God, with idols? For ye are, you all are, the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You know what it means? To be the temple of God, the cathedral of God, it means that together we house the God of the universe as we are spirit-empowered, walking in the light as he is in the light. We display the glory of God to a watching world. The Spirit of God, he says through the Spirit, the Spirit of God electrifies our very core by driving us into the Word together. Prompting worship out of that, out of that uh, looking into the Word together. Prompting worship and praise to our Redeemer. Giving generously. Serving one another and reaching the lost. This is what it means to be the temple of God. All of these things that were a part of the priesthood in the Old Testament has been given to us. As His Holy Spirit forms us by, sh- by shaping us according to the Father's eternal plan. By joining us to Jesus, that chief cornerstone. And putting His Word in our hearts and lives we are made the very dwelling place of the God of heaven. So how are you living? Are you living as a holy temple? Or is the way that you are living a shame on the temple of God and defiling the temple? Is the way that you love God and love others a defilement, or is it a way that adorns and beautifies the temple of God as church? Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18 says, but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. The father has designed and been the architect of this building. The word of Christ and Christ himself is the foundation of it that we're to build upon. We are living stones that he has sculpted specifically for a purpose in this temple. And fourthly, this building is the dwelling place of God. And remember when I say this building, I mean these bodies together. This is the first snapshot of the pictures of the church. Let's pray. Lord, we praise You and thank You again that You have called us from darkness into light to proclaim the praises of the One who has showed mercy upon us. Lord, I pray that South Hope Community Church, this expression of Your great church that You are gathering together, and that one day will be a church that understands the Gospel plan of the Father and the architect that exists to give glory, that understands our role as uniquely shaped and sculpted living stones, that understands that we are priests that offer spiritual sacrifices as we love and obey You, and that are the very cathedral of God who dwells within us. Form and shape us according to Your plan. Thank You for joining us to Jesus, writing Your Word in our hearts. May we be the uh, the Word of God uh, that the unbelievers read in our lives, and may we also share the Word of God uh, with our lips. May we be a church that grows together in quality and grows together in quantity and bring others to join us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.